Her candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is alright I close my eyes Then I drift away Into the magic night I softly say a silent prayer like dreamers do. Then I fall asleep to dream my dreams of you. In dreams, I walk with you. Welcome to another episode of Bringing Down the Grindhouse, a podcast where we discuss horror in media. And today we'll be talking about Eraserhead and Blue Velvet. I'm Mitch. And I'm Murr. I'm Justine. And I'm Jonathan. Which one do we want to talk about first? Eraserhead or Blue Velvet? We should talk about the David Lynch movie. (laughs) Oh, oh, you mean both of them? (laughs) I second that. Let's go with Blue Velvet first. Okay. Blue Velvet first. Because to me, because, well, it's the first one I watched. But (laughs) also, I feel like I have slightly more things to say about Eraserhead. There's a lot in Eraserhead. Yeah, there's a lot in Eraserhead. Eraserhead. Wow. Eraserhead. Eraserhead? It came out weird the first two times I said Rasserhead. it. <laughs> <laughs> you know that movie, Rasserhead? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, if you couldn't tell, this is the David Lynch episode. Haha. <laughs> 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 Where we talk everything Lynch. I love David Lynch and I, his funny hair. And it's, he has, yeah, he does have interesting his hair. His wizened eyes. You know, I don't think, after watching these movies, I don't think he's as pretentious as people make him out to be. We should discuss that. Oh, wow. 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 Well, to counteract my own argument, let's just define what uh, Lynchian is. Yeah, go for it. Lynchian is a particular kind of irony where the very macabre and the very mundane combine in such a way as to reveal the former's perpetual containment within the latter. That was written by David Foster Wallace, an American novelist, right after Eraserhead came out. Well, shit. Well, okay. So I guess I should say that I think Eraserhead's probably like his best film. Like literally of all the stuff he's made. Although I do enjoy Twin Peaks a lot. And it was funny to watch this like surreal nightmare that's that is the Twin Peaks unfold over a season. But like Eraserhead has so much weird shit and it's it seems to me to be like a really good technical achievement for him and filmmaking in addition to like how well he was able to express some of the ideas in it. So that to me is like one of the films where I'm like, yeah, he's not as, he's not as pretentious as most people make him out to be with that film. But with blue velvet, I think he's pretentious as fuck with blue velvet. I like blue velvet because it has twists and like, you don't know where the movie's going the first time you, you really see don't. it. And fucking Dennis Hopper, dude. <laughs> he's love fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah. I love Dennis. He's a Hopper true psychopath velvet. in this film. Yep. Honestly. <laughs> pre-fucking super mario brothers movie oh my god <laughs> we don't talk about that movie <laughs> a monkey <laughs> <laughs> yeah like so, spiked ass hair and shit sorry <laughs> no so right off the bat like what did you guys think of the films did you like them did you feel weird about it like <laughs> what were your thoughts because i know you have a lot of them i watched a racer head with my friends and we were very uncomfortable, but we were laughing at the same time. And then, like, we were just, like, we had a lot of questions at the end, as typical with that movie. Right. Blue Velvet, I watched on my own, and I just had a really good time with it. Uh, I bet. 
just like yeah you bet yeah 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 those sex scenes man oh i was laughing my ass off at that shit so awkward even david lynch says he laughs every time he watches that shit out of enjoyment or from being uncomfortable right yeah yeah. <laughs> yes uh, what, what, what i'm saying is that's I re- a super salad question you I were know, like right. yes <laughs> i really enjoyed the main character in blue velvet uh i haven't seen i've seen him in other movies but like on Ooh, agent cooper yeah <laughs> but like very this young, one was a very, very good young. performance and young laura dern yeah from jurassic park and star wars <laughs> Really? We're not doing a Star Wars tangent. No. We're not doing that. Let's, let's get into the movie. I'm stopping y'all right now. Right fucking We're now. We're skipping right past that right one. Right freaking now. All right. Anyway, so Blue Velvet. We want to discuss Blue Velvet first. Um, what did we think about both of these movies was your question, John. Yes. Mer, I think you were done giving your thoughts on, on them. I've watched a lot of, like, all of David Lynch's movies as well as, like, Twin Peaks and whatnot. And I definitely don't think that he's really that pretentious of a filmmaker. And I think Eraserhead's one of those examples of that. But I think Blue Velvet's also one of, like, the like his least pretentious ones. Like, you also have Mulholland Drive, which uh, is... That's fair. Which is good, but it's not... It doesn't convey the message as well as Blue Velvet does. Blue Velvet conveys a narrative a lot better and uses uh, Lynch's, like, dream logic type of, like, film writing and whatnot to a really good extent to where it's not too detached from reality, so you can still kind of figure out what's going on. Um, and then Eraserhead is just anxiety the movie. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Like... <laughs> Here is anxiety the movie. Yeah, and but which but it's a really good one though. It's definitely yeah. an interesting film to watch for sure, especially considering the budget they yeah, have for that one. Yeah, super low. What'd you think? I I've always really liked David Lynch for like his stylistic choices. I think that's always what I'm drawn to because I feel like if you watch a David Lynch film, like you know, before you even really get to the plot or any dialogue, it's just the way the music is, the backdrop, the setup. It's all very uh, what'd you say, Lynchian? Lynchian, yeah. Yeah, they basically made his last name into like a descriptor. Yeah, and I feel like Blue Velvet was sort of like a masterpiece as far as like his style goes. Like it had like everything. Like I I noticed a lot of crossovers, especially with Twin Peaks, which is probably one of his more well known like works. But just uh, the stylistic choices in both, even in Racerhead, uh, it really delivered that message of anxiety. All throughout, even like the choice of making it black and white, I think was really interesting because it sort of added to that really dark sort of like weird, uh, what is it, crevice in your mind, you know, like you really go to a dark place when you watch this. And I know that at the time, uh, color was, you know, a thing, but it was mostly Technicolor. And I feel like if this was in Technicolor, it would have almost been comical and not quite as like too bright. Yeah, not quite as as anxiety inducing as this movie is, you know. Well, it's like what you had the effect you had with Blue Velvet, where a lot of the scenes were very bright. Yeah. Especially right. in relation to like blood and other things that were going on. Lots in the of film. reds and blues. Yeah. Plus, this film is like when he, he was pretty much like in the stride of his style, where it's like you have scenes of just free form jazz playing while they're doing things about like the film. There's going to be this awkward silences between dialogue and it's like a miscommunication that constantly happens with characters because they're living in this weird surreal dream. And he also seems to have a thing for just women coming on to men randomly. Yeah. 
And this is like, this has been a thing that's been discussed a lot in his stuff that like, it seems to be that these dudes are living in their own kind of like dreamlike world where women just come on to them for no other reason than to have sex with them. It happens in both movies. Yeah, it happens in both movies where, uh, except I guess in Eraserhead, she's kind of like, what is this disgusting baby you have on the dresser? I'm leaving. But like, was definitely like, can I stay the night here? And was like up in his face. So it's like, and then the other one where he's pretty much like heavily stalking her in her own home. And she's like, let's have sex. I know you were just hiding in my closet, but you know, knife yeah. to the throat. Please yeah. fuck right. me. Yeah. I, so. I, <laughs> I, I feel like that whole thing for blue velvet is like a, cause it all, it like explores sadomasochism oh, in a way. Totally. And that's, and so it's kind of her trying to take power back from the situation that she's in by like turning it on him in a way. Hence why she holds the knife up to him and whatnot and like makes him do things like undress yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but that's I would a good point. S- I would say Blue Velvet is like entirely just a dream from the very beginning, especially from where it starts off. It starts off with that that like white picket fence with the roses in front of it. This is like iconic, like that scene right there. I've seen it so many times, especially on like Tumblr. You know, I feel like everybody's reblogged <laughs> that still fucking picture use all the time. <laughs> uh. Yeah, but it's like a um, it, it's like a representation that everything currently is good. At the moment, everything is good. It is bright, sunshiny. Everything is wonderful. Happy suburbia. And yeah. then you realize that everything that you're seeing is red, and red in this movie indicates danger. Yeah, bum, you're bum, going bum. towards the danger within red. You see the stop sign. You see the flowers. You see the fire truck, and this that's is, when you enter into the main character's yeah. life. This is also really reminiscent of when you are having a dream, and you're doing all right for a minute, and then you're not. <laughs> everything changes suddenly. Right. Yeah. The, I mean, the interesting bit with, with Blue Velvet is that I, I would say that, like, the dream has begun where everything is white picket fences and red roses and sunshiny. And then the dad has a hard, has a stroke yeah. while, he's, while he's watering the lawn. And then he goes and sees him. And then this is when he meets the, uh, the daughter. Yeah. And they do their plan and whatnot. Yeah, that is, was great. She just walks out of the darkness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is which is interesting and and feeds into like the dream logic yeah. idea in this movie because at the end of the movie, she's his wife and he's waking up like on his lawn at the very end of the movie like he wakes up out of his dream. Yeah, that was <sighs> So that was one of the pieces that I definitely wanted to talk about. I was like what did what did the ending mean for something like that because it goes to an extreme where he's like basically getting tortured. <laughs> by this psychopath who just wants to take him on this weird joy ride. So do you remember in the opening scene, it then pans to beneath, like after the dog is like biting at the, which is really funny to me. I always thought that was just really funny. Biting at the water. Uh, yeah, biting at the water and whatnot. But then it pans down to the bugs. Yeah. So it's doing the contrast of light and darkness. Yeah. All at the, the moment. The so- insects crawl over each other to get everything done and whatnot. Then you have the uh, robin at the end, which is supposed to represent love from Laura Dern's dream. But the robin in the at the end of the movie, the fake ass fuck robin that is not real, <laughs> uh, has a bug in his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember that. A take on that, I would say, is that this shows that the darkness has been conquered at the end. But oh, okay. because the ra- because the bird is fake, you're still in dreamland. So yeah, in his dream, yeah. he has conquered darkness and wakes up into sunshiny, like white picket fence land again. 
I've also seen a lot of commentary about how this is considered to be like a suburban gothic film because of the area that they're in, the white picket fence, the family, the nuclear family. Most likely the middle of the United States. Oh, we talked about this. Yeah. What did you mention that everything seemed to just have like a, it's like an abandoned kind of look. Yeah. Like what's interesting about the middle U.S. is it's all flat. Yeah. So there's a lot of space to build stuff, you know, in this case, like factories and farms. And that's pretty much all that's out there. And so you come across these areas that are just like the middle of fucking nowhere, (laughs) like maybe like a little town somewhere. And then you go outside of that town. It's just miles and miles of cornfields and Mm. maybe like a truck stop every couple minutes, something like that, if you're lucky. You know, but it's it's so isolated and strange out there. It also sets the pacing for the yeah. film. The, there's a reason why, like, even the, the authorities are not moving very quickly when it comes to the investigation because they're not used to this kind of stuff. Yeah, and uh, that's also probably why these kids are getting so involved in the first right. place. Right, they're, they're bored. Like, We're fucking bored. There's <laughs> nothing bored. to do out they there. They got nothing to do. There's no clubs. There's no events you can go to. No one's got cool houses. You know, everyone's just got these little shacks in the middle of Cowtown nowhere. Everyone <laughs> responds to things really weirdly too like bringing the ear to the police officer who's just like well we'll get right on investigating like he's yeah. not freaked out that there's yeah, an ear right. not at all and he's which, like you got to show me exactly where you which, found this. which i think is like dream dialogue yeah all playing into yeah. they are still in a dream because people just interact weirdly to things oh man when you're talking about lynch it's important to talk about two different things one being semiotics the study of signs and symbols and their use and yeah, interpretation definitely. as well as mise en sense the arrangement of scenery yes. and stage properties to a certain scene. Way to bring a fancy film term into the conversation. Damn. I, I love know, it. look at you. <laughs> I've, I learned completely about this and not a lot of people. People know what it is, but they didn't know there was an official term for it. But yeah. basically, it's the idea of the director and the cinematographer coming together as well as the science, sound designer to create the world that you're living in. And it usually will include the sound. So what's on screen, what's off screen. And then how you might feel about the framing of what you're looking at. Why is it done this way? And what exactly are you showing the audience as opposed to what you might not be showing them and just hearing? So there's a lot of different things to it. Like, what are you trying to portray within the limited amount of time and space that you have? It's French, I think, right? It is French. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I was, was like, looking into it because, you know, I'm really big into, like, analyzing the special effects and how people make things. Mise-en-scene is just one of those things that I never knew was an actual term. And I'm yeah. glad I learned about it this week when I was looking up info on this stuff. It's dope. And it gives you more sense to, well, it gives you more tools to analyze film it's when, more, you, when you realize what you're looking for. It's more prevalent in Eraserhead. Oh, yeah. Holy uh, shit. Absolutely. Holy shit. But they did such a good job of creating a soundscape in Eraserhead that is going to make you anxious, nervous, like kind of overwhelming at some points the best noise album of 1977 dog you tell me another fucking noise album from that year from 77 i can't think of anything off the top of my head (laughs) i actually noticed like visually and aesthetically a lot of crossovers between tetsuo iron man and Eraserhead. yes yeah yes that's what i that's exactly i was gonna say it's i felt just as disturbed and anxious yeah also jack nance is in both films oh shit the guy who plays henry is paul hi i'm paul whoa and he's like he's like fat and has yeah. a beard and yeah. wears like a little fedora. I, I didn't even realize that. Holy yeah. shit. <laughs> also, uh Jack Nance is also in David Lynch's film of Dune. Yeah. From the book. Yeah. Just so we kind of glossed over it, but the budget for Blue Velvet was six million and it made eight point six million in North America. So it did make money, but not a whole lot. It ended up gaining more of like 
occult status much later because of the stylistic choices he made for it especially because not a lot of people really like surrealist film they get confused or they don't like that it's kind of directionless in some points but that's kind of the point of watching that because it's a dream <laughs> yeah 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 and i would imagine that's that's why it's hard for people to get into david lynch things Anything, in general yeah. <laughs> because he does that and i think it's they're challenging watches that's kind of what they are. So they're sort of like films made for filmmakers almost. Right. Oh, yeah. This idea. is definitely made for filmmakers. Like, yeah. uh, what's it called? Eraserhead? I ended up watching in a film class because the teacher was like, look at this. This is a technical masterpiece. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he was so in love with it. He was like, you guys got to watch Feast this Feast your movie. eyes upon me. <laughs> <laughs> I bet if the lighthouse was out at that time, he would have shown us that one too. Because mm. he's mm-hmm. just like, this is like a master class in lighting. Check this out. <laughs> I mean, this movie... Clint Eastwood said is his favorite movie from this year, but also he also like what the knows, lighthouse? No, no. Uh, oh, Eraserhead. No, no, no. Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet. But also he says <laughs> that this is one of the most dangerous films I've ever seen. Uh, Ooh, dangerous. Why dangerous? Dangerous because of how like how you feel so compacted and like claustrophobic oh, with I the see. main character. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, watching like the chick in her apartment, figuring out that she's not in fact the murderer that she's actually getting uh, blackmailed. Yeah. they have her uh, husband and son hostage. Yeah. And then having to deal with trying to bring that justice. I was getting anxious when he was like pulling up to the industrial sites with like his super sick camera. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the ultimate foyer. <laughs> yeah. So that was one thing that I wanted uh-huh. to mention was that they seem to play with this idea that he was possibly a voyeur and it was getting into some sort of sexual situation like that and like fully knowing what he was doing. But he didn't really know how to handle the feelings of wanting to like watch certain things unfold. Like he watches the whole scene where she basically gets like beaten down, held down while he humps her. Rape. Dry and it's like, it's like full assault of like, dr- yeah, like a dry humping, but like he still shoves something in her mouth and like, it ends up being such a brutal scene that like, this is one of the reasons why studios didn't want to take the film. Because yeah. they were like, you want to do what? <laughs> like during one of the scenes and they were not approving it. I was just thinking. But he watches if... the whole thing. He yeah. doesn't do anything. And then on like, you know, the outside of this, what is it like to direct a scene like that? Yeah, for You know, real. like how, how would you go about like putting it on a script first of all? And then explaining to your actors how you want this to go down. I don't even like... know if I could tell someone that they're about yeah. to experience all that. Like, hey, you're about to get thrown to the ground, like beaten. vigorously humped and beaten. <laughs> like while you gotta, this, don't break guy's... the scene though. Don't while break it. this guy's it. having like some sort of psychotic break. Like, don't look at me. Need my daddy needs his gas. Uh, like, yeah, no, he's yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> Don't talk you about. Look at me. Let's talk this. <laughs> Don't you look at me. Let's talk about this mommy daddy fetish he's got going on too. Yeah, it's fucked up. Oh, well, okay. I can only assume that one, he's a psychopath. Obviously, Two, he's definitely got some like parental issues of like not being able to. I don't know what is it. it it's been explained before in other things where he probably just didn't have any of their attention or affection. Mm-hmm. So he's wanting it from this female person in his life who he is like forcing into this position by blackmailing her. But another thing too is that there's like kind of no confirmation that her kid or husband is real. Until the end when you see her kid. Do you yep. see her kid, right? Yeah. Just the kid. But you don't see the husband. Right. I don't think they ever actually mentioned the husband in this one because I think it's just the baby that they're keeping from oh, her. Oh, gotcha. Mm. But she calls him like a certain name. Carl or something like that. Yeah. yeah she keeps her... calling him. A, no, she calls him a different name that's not his. 
And like she does that repeatedly while they're like having like intimate sexual experiences. She keeps saying a different name because like I guess she's envisioning someone else. But this also touches so much on uh, like how people might feel about the abuse they're experiencing and how they might cope with something like that. Disassociate. Yeah. And it ends and up being that. How so? Like disassociate as in you're experiencing this traumatic event. And so you disassociate from that by reassociating it with something else oh, that is more of a okay. pleasurable event. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's why she was like remembering mm-hmm. this person who was a good thing in her life as opposed yeah. to this dude who's beaten the shit out of her for yeah. no fucking reason. I was very surprised that she came on to the guy as soon as that other, uh, as soon as Frank left. Uh, like well... A- so that's a that's a thing too is that it's not unusual for anybody who's might have experienced some sort of sexual abuse to also be hypersexual after that event mm-hmm. but not know what to do with that feeling of mm-hmm. what am I like am I actually wanting to do this or is it more of they just want a comfort from someone and then anyone near them has to like navigate whether or not they're going to pursue that or if they're going to be like no actually you should probably like sit down and relax and do something else right like um you know this is just something that I'd heard from a friend of mine that experienced something like that and she said after experiencing that she became hypersexual as a way of like basically saying that it wasn't a big deal oh, okay. because in her mind it was such a traumatic event because it was seen to like this, normalize like, very, it yeah it was basically her way of normalizing this event is by going on a binge basically and trying to normalize what she had just experienced as a way of coping so that might be something that was going on with her at that time. Yeah. And then also the fact that this dude is obviously a lot younger than she is. Yeah. And maybe in some way reminded her of her son, which I know is kind of weird to say. But like, you know, in a way, her son was what brought her like some sort of joy and sense right. of like well, normality. She's having a, a chance to also be maternal to somebody yeah, in a different right. way. So uh-huh. it's not totally unusual for something like that. But also uh, it's a... Uh, like you said it's a a way of coping with something like that and on the other end of it he's so young like i guess he's supposed to be like 17 18 like high school age like high school age and so he's not really experienced so like he's not going to deny someone who's wanting to have sex with him Mm -hmm. but also like he definitely shouldn't have in that moment he also does not want to hit her yeah he very much does not want to get into the uh area of like yeah i'm gonna hit you too probably because he he himself can't really handle it, but also he's witnessed someone else like hitting her too. So it's like a weird thing to associate himself with someone like that. So like it gets to do a lot of stuff just with those few scenes and his relationship with her as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Off topic. What's your favorite beer, John? <laughs> Heineken. <laughs> fuck Heineken. Uh, fuck Heineken. <laughs> Past Blue Ribbon. Ribbon. <laughs> That's like the funniest fucking scene. It is, but... It also has a little bit of symbiotics simply because he, uh, Frank is drawn to the blue. He's drawn to her blue dress, putting it yeah, in his mouth, putting the, it in her the mouth. The theme of the color. He watches her sing blue velvet while the room Sticks is blue. Sticks like velvet in his mouth. <laughs> he wants to go towards this blue, which is basically the harmony and the light, but he is forever going to be entrapped in red. <laughs> That's why there Dang. are red curtains. <laughs> well, shit. Yeah, that's a good read on the, I also the, thought the symbolism. The end scene where uh, Kyle McLaughlin's character has the radio and he's like, I'm in the fucking, I'm in the bedroom. And then just turns his oh, radio I off and that. goes in the closet. I was like, dude, this is so good. Yeah. Mm. 
That was really well done because, like, a psychopath's not going to double check the closet. He's going to be like, You fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, that's like, what he yeah. said. <laughs> like, you don't think I know where you're at? Like, I have that a narcissism kicks in. Exactly. He doesn't yeah. think he's ever wrong. So he's yeah. like, I got to know. Like, I know he's in the room, so I'm going to go fucking find him and then just get shot. So it's like, this is a great scene. I love when the cop comes in, too, because he's got this, like, ready stance. <laughs> when he drops in, like, everything's already happened. He's like, yeah. Oh, thanks, kid. Yeah. <laughs> fucking useless the whole film. The husband film. of the main woman she's he's dead yeah and then you have the guy in the yellow suit who has some symbiotics as well he is wearing a yellow suit the entire time he is truly neutral in all of this yeah. he works for both sides he yeah, works he for did. frank on the low and he's also a detective at the police department he's a crooked cop <laughs> but those he don't does. exist <laughs> that doesn't exist don't <laughs> lie to me <laughs> um what did you guys make of the like escalated violence that sort of happened towards the end where he takes him on this joy ride. Like what the fuck was that even about? <laughs> like why like, even driving like a hundred like miles that? per hour? Yeah. Like blasting fucking Ray. I Orbison. couldn't think of anything besides this idea of how some people get when they're on specific drugs. Yeah. And they have this feeling of like, I just want to make things as dangerous as possible because I don't feel anything and I want to feel something crazy. And they do stuff like that, which is like high adrenaline, and they end up putting themselves in these violent situations. He even, like, draws lipstick on himself and kisses him at some point because he's yeah. just so fucking nuts. I think a lot of it, too, is just him trying to have, like, a sense of control because I know that's a big thing with psychopaths in general. Right. So they want to be in control of the situation. And he sees this random dude with his, you know, woman. And he's <laughs> yeah. like, what's going on here? He fell out of control of the situation. That was great. So in his drug haze he had to assert his dominance over this dude and basically like oh hey let's go on a joy ride let me see what you're about you yeah know? and then try to like intimidate him basically yeah, size after him that. up <laughs> are you a real man yeah. well, get in this car with me and my other weird buddies yeah. and let's oh drive God. down the freeway at a billion miles an hour and <laughs> see how manly you are now i'm paul <laughs> <laughs> uh, yo, oh my god dude. but yo the cold cock that he gives frank in the car is one of the best things uh. like ever that whole thing <laughs> i'm gonna write you a fucking love letter <laughs> do you know what a love letter is <laughs> <laughs> just flipping out <laughs> and then uh he requests that the music gets turned up louder while the fucking stripper starts dancing on the car oh my god that, i love that scene so much she just gets she's out just and starts like, vibing <laughs> i know she's out here vibing <laughs> i was like that's me that would be me that's in this so situation uh, <laughs> but that room though the room oh, with the fucking man. with the kid in the back just all the servants i want fucking whiskey gets uh, fucking whiskey immediately <laughs> where's the beers put the beers in there they're gonna get warm Who's this cabaret-looking host over here? Oh, my God. Okay, I love the fucking host because he looks like the most chill drug dealer you've ever fucking seen. I know, just on Quaaludes the whole time. The whole time. He he has this psychopath come into his house every fucking week, and he knows that he's going to come in like nuts. And he's just like, it's all right, dude. Look, look. She's got the cups. Look. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's okay. The beer's not going to get cold. Let me sing you a song. And then sings into the fucking light. Like, what? The dude is Lip-sync so into for it. your life. Oh my god! He not only so do you get it. your quit your lewds, not only do you get, get your lewds, you get a show. <laughs> lewds and tunes. I mean, oh I think that something that we we forget when analyzing this is if we don't analyze it under the context of this being a dream, it's that very it, odd. It's, it's a lot less. It's a lot more like surreal. Yeah. Which oh, is, yeah. Which is like the point. 
you know, and, and, and whatnot is to display like how people view dreams and what goes on in dreams. People are just weird. Like, why does his why is his wife present in this dream as like his partner, but they're not actually together? You know, right. sort of idea. Like, because that's like that's because she's, so, she's seen at the very end of the movie, like bringing out lemonade and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, she huh? got so fucking over him cheating in like two seconds. She's like, it's okay, I forgive you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Dream logic. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Where she's like, "It's okay. I still love you." And you're like, "What the fuck?" Hence, hence, like not being able to like act or like lucidly act during like our assault scene in this yes. movie as well could also be attributed to that same idea. He's just a voyeur there, and he can't. His dream doesn't let him do anything. Maybe he can't because he shows that he can later on. He That's can true. interact in the situation. So it's it's interesting to look at it to look at it through that scope is like why why is he prevented from doing certain things is it the okay. dream or All is right. it him right or, and yeah. there's this other thing this other like symbolism of characters that I've noticed in uh, both of these movies actually is the these female characters because I feel like there's always two love interests right there's the original one who's sort of like this pure girl this blonde girl always the blonde girl you know she's the one that has to be saved and protected right and then there's always this dark curly haired temptress yes that is present yo and so I'm like what what's what's going on here what are these women representing I think it's two things I think the first thing is that David Lynch has a thing for women with dark hair oh yeah <laughs> and just wants to live some of his uh, internal fantasies through his film which happens a lot with people the second thing is that this is common in film in general for for filmmakers to make this idea of two different types of women that one is ideal to everybody which is the innocent person the one who doesn't really have sex the one who's like not going to be punished but then the person who is sexually open is always well, punished in film you know in Eraserhead though this blonde girl was sexually open and she was punished but also the other female character was Right. You know, well, the thing is, she is the that baby. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so erase your head's definitely like more about like your fear of parenthood and mm -hmm. how you're going to end up like terrified of children and what might happen when you do have a kid. And it touches on so many different things. But the, for the other film, it seems like the women in the film didn't seem to have like their own autonomy for anything really. Mm -hmm. Like, except for maybe the daughter of the, of the police detective. But even so, he was pretty controlling of how, like, what she was supposed to be doing, and like, constantly was like, "No, you're not allowed to do this." Who was uh, uh, the detective? The dad? Oh, yeah, definitely. But I feel like when she was with the other dude, I uh, forget his name, the main character. Yeah, um, she definitely had a lot more say. Like, right. he would sort of be like, "Oh no, you don't have to do this." But yeah. she would usually like actually want. She's always down for it, you know? right? And so you then had the dynamic of how she was with him compared to how she was with her own father. Yeah. So. That's interesting. I didn't consider that either. Mm. <laughs> and, and in this one, his father's also dead yeah. as well. Yeah. And so, I mean, or at least is dying. Or yeah, he's got like, his mom yeah, and his aunt exactly. who are just always hanging out together. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then, it, but so it's kind of like a, maybe this is like a way that he creates like a father figure in his own dream. Right. That acts as such because his character was kind of like, like lost that. I wonder if this was just Lynch's way of saying that he had shitty parents and he's terrified of having children. <laughs> oh, you mean a racer head? Huh? Or both oh, of them? Oh, both of them? <laughs> yeah, both of them. Uh, I don't know if Lynch has any kids. Honestly, mm. I've never. Uh, he does, and I'll get into that. Oh, okay. All oh, right. Tea. Oh, so there is a story behind There's there. There's a story behind Lynch's. You know children. what? Just get into it now. What's what, the what, tea? What, bro? Are we going to go into racer head? Yeah, we're, let's move into okay. racer head. Okay. Okay. Cool. Should we say any final thoughts on like this? Uh. Oh. I think Blue Velvet is worth a watch because it's just so wild. 
And yeah. you have some amazing performances from the actors in the film. They're like spot on for their character roles. Uh, Agreed. Put your smartphones away for this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. You have to watch the whole thing. Yes. If you don't watch everything, you miss stuff. Yeah, this movie's about details. Yeah. All right. Definitely. I'll get into it. So Eraserhead, uh, directed by that one guy, what's his? Uh, Lynch David, yes. Uh, <laughs> Lynch David. Stars Jack Nance. And it was released in nine, uh, March 19th, 1977. It had a budget of $10,000 and made $7 million Wild. Because of fucking film festivals. Yeah. Oh, people ate this shit up when it came out on film festivals. It mm-hmm. sucks to release a film that year because you just got overshadowed by Eraserhead a- on everything. Eraserhead ah. had like years of like dead production in it too. Like they had, there's like a couple, uh, yeah, Murr's going to get into it, but there, this is something I know, but Murr will talk about it. So David Lynch... Uh, worked with a bunch of friends. He worked with Fred Elms as the cinematographer, Jack Fisk as the production design. He also, if you know, he does the production design for the movie Carrie. Yeah. Um, and then sound by Alan Splett and David Lynch themselves. They made the noise record. <laughs> nice. Um, so a little bit of background because this is David Lynch's first film. He went to AFI, the American Film Institute in Los Angeles, where he presented Guarded, Garden Back as his final thesis. It was a short about a man growing vegetation on his back. Um, however, that didn't go, so then he had to go with Eraserhead. So the filming began in 1971, and it took six years to complete. Wild. And while that entire thing happened, the actor Jack Nance kept his hair the same way for six years. Bruh. Dedication. <laughs> whoa. Whoa. Holy Has shit. he been in any other movies other yeah, than Eraserhead? Oh, well, he was in Dune. He was in Blue Velvet. Oh, that's right, huh? Duh. <laughs> He's only with Lynch. <laughs> no one else wanted I only him. work for this man. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that were present in David Lynch's life when he was building this movie. Um, so he kind of somewhat based it off of him when he had his kid Jennifer when he was 22. Jennifer had a disability. She was uh, actually deformed when she was born. So ah. that is very present in the thing. So within That's like a, a direct allusion to that. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty wild because I wonder how it would feel to be the daughter after all these years hearing all these articles right? about that shit. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, but he wanted to present several different themes within the movie about anxiety and fear with having a child. So one was losing freedom due to a child. Yep. Two, meeting the family of a girl that you put off and have broken up, up with. Yep. Three, seeing nightmare images of birth and a mother-in-law's anguish. Oh, jeez. Four, coming face-to-face to to a needy, hideous creature robbing you of any grain of freedom. (laughs) Five, trying to deal with a sexual appetite that you literally have to shove into a box. That was the worm. Oh, okay. We were wondering what that was. As well as marrying someone you do not love. Yeah, there's so many things that they talked about. The the script was also based off of stories from uh, Kafka and what was the other one? Uh, Gogol. Them, them two created stories about a weird transformation and bugs and the the idea of this body horror that was in literature before it was in film. And so he definitely based the script off of that too because there are instances where people have children and they are very disturbed by how they look. And it ends up being this uh, like it turns into a mental disorder at some point where they don't want to be near their children. In fact, there's like a lot of women who might get the postpartum depression of like, I fucking hate my life after having a child and they don't want to take care of it at all. Mm -hmm. And so there's like the, they touch on a few things like that. There's also, like you said, where there's small moments of them, like not getting any sleep 
she leaves and like yeah. doesn't want to deal with it. She almost like throws the baby because she gets so frustrated. She goes over and screams in its face, like like, shut she, like up. to shut, shut up because oh, it's yeah. just so extreme. And so, the thing is, yeah. like Jack Nance's character Henry, he's used to fucking loud noises. He lives right next to the train station. Yeah, this is just another day. Yeah. Right. Well, what I liked about that was uh, this touches a little bit on how people feel when they have anxiety and when they have depression. A lot of things become normalized, so you're kind of used to experiencing pretty awful things. Yeah. And so he has more patience for dealing with the kid because he understands that like this is kind of a thing that won't go away. I think kind of the reason why it had frustrated him too so much is because now he has this other person that's sort of like reflecting this lifestyle yeah, back Just him. like him, yeah. Yeah. He's like, oh shit, I don't know about this. Just constantly in anguish and crying. Just like he's trapped <laughs> in his life. Yep. This child is trapped in these bindings and at the end he must free it. <laughs> Henry the Bachelor literally stabs dead. it. Yeah. yeah. Henry the Bachelor is dead and the only thing that could bring it back is his child's death. Oh, jeez. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the metaphorical death of his life because he's not able to do anything now that he has to raise this child. He didn't really mm-hmm. do much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right? Yeah, he didn't really <laughs> do much. He's on vacation, guys. Well, this also gets at the idea of whether or not people are allowed to or can hate their own children. And like most of anything that you see in popular media is always going to show a positive relationship with your children. The only time you see something negative is when they're a little older and they're yelling at you that they hate you. But it always comes with a moment of, oh, we're making up. This more has to do with the fact when they're younger and how you might feel about them, like having zero control over their body. And like you have to take care of them every single moment. Mm -hmm. Another movie that does this is The Babadook, where she absolutely hates her child because he is just unhinged most of the film and yelling and doing all these weird things. And she like hates him at some point and people are not okay with that idea when it comes to film. Like they think that she may be like a bad mother. And so people might Mm -hmm. take this note of, Oh, the dad and the mother are bad people for hating their own child and not being able to deal with those emotions. Parents get frustrated with their kids all the time. All the time. (laughs) And you know what I mean? To the point where they, they get driven to the edge. People say, hateful stupid shit when they're really angry even parents they're people just like everyone else and they're just like i mean i guess we put like such a heavy burden on parents sometimes i suppose in our society and enough emphasis on like how difficult it is to be a parent in the first place because there's so much responsibility and expectation that's on you and like basically people are going to see you as a bad parent if your kid is you know unruly like that you know yeah so in a sense, like the the way the kid is is sort of reflecting like everything she had. They might be like fearful of themselves, you know. Like what what parts about them make them anxious are now reflected in this child that they have. Yeah, I think that would be the ultimate thing he'd be scared of was that like he's not doing so well. So what the hell is this child gonna be like? Yeah. On top of the fact that it's like a lizard. <laughs> is like, it a lizard? I don't even know what the fuck that. Yeah, thing the is. descriptions we, say it's a lizard. It's like, a premature child. We call, that's all it is, and they just made it look freakish. It's like a fucking worm. I call we thing. called it a dinosaur. It does. It look does like look like a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. Or like it has like a mouth like a turtle, but a body like a fucking sperm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people weird. still to this day don't know how the effect was made. Many think it's either a puppet or see or a claymation. They can't tell. I guess it was a puppet, and like them just pumping stuff up through the the like. That's what false, I would guess too. Uh, would it possible table? to be a combination of both? Of yeah. what, like a puppet and and claymation effects? It's it's too smooth for yeah, claymation. It's too smooth. it's too smooth for claymation. I think Clay- I've I've never seen the claymation was when that weird thing is crawling across like the openings and there's little holes. Like that was yeah. for sure claymation. Mm-hmm. But the but that scene, yeah, it was too fluid. I would guess it's just a lot of really good effects. And the thing is, like, 
when we're presented in this movie, it is shot in black and white. It does remind me of Tetsuo the Iron Man a lot. I yeah. felt you're in this very industrial. dark industrial age. There's a lot of steam, a lot of loud noises. Right. Um. Then you get into the symbolism of his little room. Yeah. yeah. Well, so there's really good stuff in here about social commentary that have to that has to do with people living in a capitalist society, especially in areas that have been industrialized. So there's no like foliage, there's no trees, no nice flowers. It's all gravel, dirt, mud. Very little light. Yeah, very little light. He's like having to live in this dungy place. He has like a boiler in the middle of his room where that's like constantly making noise and will like drive his anxiety through the roof. I'm pretty sure his apartment was just one room too. It was just the bedroom. Uh, that and like the bathroom, I think. Yeah. But they never show it. They You only see her like go in there once and then mm-hmm. leave. There's a little bit of like context clues into like what kind of age this is. Cause the thing is we yeah. don't have a time and we don't have a location. Yeah. There's no calendars. There's like no clocks. I don't think. So we yeah. have the bed with the blanket with a ton of holes in it from him scratching at it from his Yeah. Anxiety. From him picking yeah. it. Cause he's so nervous all the time. We have the, is it a boiler or the furnace? It's a furnace uh, in which, yeah, he, I think in that which actually... he hallucinates the woman is in. Yeah, mm-hmm. every time he stares into it, the camera like dives into it, and then you go to this weird show. <laughs> there is the little picture of the atomic bomb, atomic bomb, which is like super huge. Uh, simply because like it is a post nuclear war, but we don't know where and what. Yeah, and it kind of just makes you guessing. And then the biggest one is the tree, the dead tree that has no pot. He is bad at nourishing things and keeping things alive. <laughs> yeah. It is horrible for him to be in a point and position oh, where he has to be a father. And it's on his nightstand. It's always close to his head. Always reminded. He's always, always reminded. reminded of it. Within yeah. the dream sequences inside the furnace, the tree eventually comes in and it's giant and it's rolled in and it eventually starts to bleed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, Damn. This gave me strong vibes of how people felt after the World Wars. So after World War II was done and they realized that the entire country had been made to be like a total war situation. They yeah. didn't know what to do with all the industry that they had created. So a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of places closed, which is why there's so many abandoned factories in the middle of the United States. And most people didn't know what to do with their lives because all their lives was work. And so yeah, this is right. like just like heavy, the dad. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. dad who, co- who complains. I put every fucking pipe in this city. Oh, uh, I know his yeah. pipes. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that was just so much anxiety in one scene because he's having to deal with meeting the parents. His mom, like her mom, like coming on to him at some point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just And then she doesn't even like like freak out about knowledge. She, she like pulls him, pulls her away. And she's like, oh, my God, like what's going on? And then. It skips to something else, and I'm like, yeah, this is like a surreal moment of what the fuck is well, happening. Yeah, why is the mom just like playing grab ass with the <laughs> new husband? And what what is the story here? Oh my god! And this scene, this whole like meeting the parents scene, right. there's really an interesting pacing choice that he used with the dialogue. Yeah. Is that there would be these really long awkward yes. pauses. And it was interesting. It was a play on time because I feel like internally the time with him was moving a lot faster than it was for everybody else. Because you'd be at these scenes and everyone's almost like still like stuck in a moment at the table. And he's like, you know, fidgeting in his own mind space. But I also like how there was just these long drawn out pauses in conversation. Yeah. Which I feel like anybody who has social anxiety or any sort yes. of... Uh, depression anything like that really when they have conversations and they're in a bad state silences are like very deafening they can last a long time even if it's just a few moments i fucking felt anxious especially when he was like i lost my arm can you cut the chicken 
they're just tiny little chickens. And it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> so first of all, I would hate to be asked to cut chicken at someone's house because I don't want to be the one to do it. And yeah. second, uh, what you were explaining, which was the the difference in your perception of time, right. which has a lot to do with your cognitive abilities and how you're like dealing with internal information and things coming at you, which is why like certain noises and things can become overwhelming. And mm-hmm. then since you're processing it slower or faster, you're having a different experience than everyone else around you. Something that might seem overwhelming to yeah, you is like not to everybody else. You know, you yeah. feel disconnected from reality Huge in that disconnect. moment. So a, a crazy look into mental illness or possibly uh, just like a regular social anxiety, um, but in film form. Right. <laughs> Where you actually get to see. In visual real time hear form. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get to see and hear it and experience it along with the main character. I mean, Maybe even like an analysis of how depression is created yes. in someone as well because we could he could like the anxiety could be induced just from his environment in general and it just gets exacerbated more later all the loud noises what do you what do you guys think about the the popcorn cheeks lady i I have no i have no idea what the whole deal is she looks like a tadpole (laughs) she looks like a tadpole (laughs) i gotta read okay so this entire movie he's putting his sexuality in a box all right the first scene we see with her she comes out and she stomps on the tadpoles Little sperms. Little sperms. Little spermy sperms. <clears throat> this chick represents death, I believe. I believe so because every time that he hallucinates and goes to this other world, he's watching a show and that's when he's at peace. The second time we visit this is when his son literally pops his head off <laughs> and they do the entire eraser head bit. Yeah. Yeah. So Oof. we go through this and we might as well go a little bit into the eraser head bit in a, in a little, but. Yeah. The last scene we see with her, I mean, actually the first scene is when she starts singing in heaven that everything is fine, you know? Oh, geez. And everything, what's yours is mine. At the end of the movie, he hugs her, and that's the only thing. The only thing that could help Henry overcome his freedom of sexuality (laughs) because he can't fuck his roommate anymore, you know? She's going and getting an uglier dude. She just sees (laughs) the baby whenever she looks at Henry. She can't. Oh yeah, literally sees the head on him. He can't yeah. make amends with his wife, nope. who he doesn't really love. Yeah, he can't do what he wants to do right. on fucking Henry's vacation. So he does what yeah. he do- can and gives death to the child, and eventually succumbs himself. To I death. can only assume he kills himself. Yes. at the end because he doesn't want to deal yeah, with it's all the this sweet shit. embrace of death, <laughs> which is a a troubling and also kind of misunderstood thing that happens with people who are experiencing thoughts of suicide when it comes to this idea of like uh how are you actually feeling about it? And you ask anybody who might have those feelings and it's not a negative connotation. It's not a, Oh, this is going to be painful. This is going to be painful for everybody else. It's going to be like, no, I'm going to like experience nothing. And that sounds great. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's sort of like a, and that's why I think a lot of people like view suicide as a selfish idea is because it, it, it doesn't take into regard how it affects literally everyone else around you in some way. Um, and then, but then for them, it's, you know, it's an end, you know, like a, like a sweet end, like an end from everything. A huggy, a huggy embrace. Right. Yeah. yeah it goes all it's white. Relief. Yeah. It's, it's just relief. That's you know? a, I feel like that's one of the best ways you probably could have expressed how relief would feel. I mean, mm-hmm. with this, with this read that Murr's making makes the song even more like creepy. awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was great. It was great and creepy before, but I didn't understand yeah. why. Now and more. now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, this is like death, like being like, come on, everything is fine. When you're dead. Yeah, here's, exactly. Here's the thing. In the beginning of the movie, Henry's set on track from the moon man, too. 
The guy who's like covered in sharps and fucking holes. I, yeah. I, yeah. I do have to say one thing though is that the Pixies did a cover of the Everything is Fine <laughs> in Heaven as well. That exists and you can find it. You do a search. Nice. It's All, pretty cool. Also, now that we're on a topic of music, do you know what's the number one peop- uh, number one song that people kill themselves to? No. Freebird. No, what? By Leonard Skinner. The 11-minute long song? Yep, you're going to kill yourself by the third guitar solo. I don't know how to feel about where that Where did you get this information? Yeah, where did this come from? St- st- uh, statistic online. Check it out. I got to go Google that. All right, like, what's what? the second <laughs> The morbid question. What are the second and third songs? <laughs> well, like, here's the thing, though. Like, If you're killing yourself to Freebird... That's a lot of fucking time on your hands. Like you're gonna die from boredom before you die of fucking suicide. Shit. <laughs> you're just you're just drifting. The, I'm free as a bird. Okay, never mind. I'm not gonna do this. But, See now you, know, you understand it. Yeah, now I understand it. But yeah. Wow. Or it's a wow. desperate attempt to just fall asleep instead of actually okay. do the thing. So I wanted to ask you guys, what did you think about the entire scenes with the roommate, and then what did you think about the entire scenes upon the death of the child? Um, Mur. There's one scene in particular that has one of the funniest lines in this movie, though. What is it? I'm trying to remember what the line is, uh. but it's like "Okay, Paul" or something like that. I don't remember. You know what I'm talking about? But he comes in with the head, like in yeah, his and hands. he's just like "Okay, Paul," and, and like, it's because he keeps hitting the buzzer, like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh. The guy, the buzzer guy, that's is the buzzer. Yeah, I love that entire scene. The kid <laughs> runs, grabs Henry's head. Uh, I feel like that was just like here is some very heavy handed commentary on what happens when you work in an industrialized area. Yep. You're going to be eaten by the machine. You, yep. you will get eaten, taken apart, and then add it to something that's eventually just going to get erased away and no one will ever remember you. <laughs> like, that's what it is to live in the industrial world. It's a good Fuck. read. <laughs> yeah, it's heavy. Good read. <laughs> anyway, Mur, I'm sorry. What was your other question? I just had to bring that up. Yeah, no, I'm funny. glad you brought it yeah. up. <laughs> uh, so the entire scene. The sex where scenes he, or he quote cheen, unquote sex cheats, scenes. And then the killing of the child. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, this is like an extreme version of what would happen if you are uh, sick of your child. You're just like, I'm going to fucking kill it and then kill myself because that totally happens in crimes. Uh, People often murder their own children and then kill themselves. They usually will not murder their kids and then just leave. Did you? Oh, my God. Very horrific fucking tale. You hear about those fucking... Those lesbians that drove off the cliff with the fucking yes. foster yeah. children. Yeah. yeah. Horrible. Yeah. Gave them like so much Benadryl it could knock out a fucking That's elephant crazy. and shit. Rest in peace to those children. They didn't have a choice. Yeah. Well, shit. Anyway, so now that we're on to the subject of dead children. Um, uh. Jesus. All right. Anyway. Jeez. Um, he stabs the shit out of this kid. Yeah, he does yeah. with that. With that. Yeah, he just like. Well, he undoes. He like. He like he does undoes like the, um, the bandages and shit. Yeah, and then sees that it's dying, and then decides to give it like a release. So that, that was, was way, yeah. Sorry, that was something I wanted yeah, to bring exactly. up that happens a lot in what I've seen with David Lynch is cutting fabric. Oh god. I feel like that's a really like important symbolism and things and I'm trying to like piece together what exactly it means cuz well, both in Blue Velvet and Eraserhead you have a significant scene with cutting velvet or cutting some sort of fabric in Eraserhead it's the bandages wrapping the child and in Blue Velvet it's the dress that she's wearing or the the cloak the blue velvet cloak. I think it has a lot to do with texture 
and how the, yeah how i actually this, had that written down in my notes yeah <laughs> texture is everything in his films because it gives you such a visceral idea of what something is going to feel look and smell like yeah because you get you can get all that just from the way that something looks so you had that like gooey like slimy surface that this kid was so like you don't want to touch it you don't want to hold it it's probably like filthy because it's picking up anything that's near it yeah and it's like in these bandages which is supposed to be like a healing thing but it's obviously not working i think the bandages also were sort of like the veil of the unknown that you know too. because he doesn't know what this child's body yeah, really exactly. looks like he just has the head of this child Which is just like mush it's not even yeah. really like making anything it's yeah, just it's, organs yeah. that are somehow contained in these bandages i don't even know how you would give birth to that like what does it come out i don't as? even know that that was like the weirdest thing like that they don't talk about is that she gives birth to this thing and you're like oh yeah it's all the dream logic, guys. It's not supposed to be realistic. It's uh, supposed to be dream. We're all- dealing with Lynchian dream logic. But I think I think the killing of the child in the film was his way of trying to take back control of his life. But then it doesn't go exactly how he expects because it like grows bigger <laughs> after like having yeah. been stabbed and then like haunts him basically. It could just be the guilt. Yeah, oh, the anxiety, totally. Yeah. Just haunting him. And he doesn't want to live that's, with it. That's why he hugs the furnace girl at the end yep just yeah. kills himself well murray you also mentioned the uh the love making with the uh roommate as well scene what did we think of that i've only ever seen a scene where like the bed like sinks into the floor in one other movie and that was train spotting it's the oh, only yeah, huh? time i've ever seen like like a shot like that where like the floor is like sinking down beneath like the rest of everything else so it was really interesting to see a movie like way before that using a similar effect to yeah. to display like an indulgence in pleasure. Yeah, it's like overwhelming and yeah. takes over everything. Yeah, exactly. And you just kind of sink away yeah. from everything around you. It's the water. It's the water that does a lot of it simply because when Henry's head pops off, <laughs> it's drowning in a pool of blood until it's eventually succumbed to it. Right. And then you have this whole sex scene where his head basically goes underwater with her. And I feel like there is a little bit of a symbolic gesture, but I can't make one out for the death of me. For? For them have, making love. Oh, I mean... <laughs> well, my, my read on it is him making love to this beautiful woman, in a sense, was him trying to get his life back. He was trying to get something good for himself because really just nothing was really going right. You know, the whole thing with his girl this weird child, just total chaos. And so having this beautiful woman nearby that's trying to like, you know, help him out and stuff like that and ultimately takes advantage of him. But, you know, I don't think he realized that in the moment. And then there's the scene when he comes back to her again, she's not there and she comes back with that ugly dude and looks at him with like total disgust. Yeah. And then, you know, you have that image of his, his weird child reflected back where his head would be. And so, you know, in a way, I feel like that's a moment where she's looking at him with such disgust as he looks at his own child. And, you know, it was sort of like that moment of trying to get your life back was just shattered. And then everything kind of fell to shit after that, you know. So I feel like that scene was sort of like the boiling point. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. It gets to a head where he is trying to deal with all of the emotions he has with relationships with trying to get back his own life and then with possibly making a new relationship after his wife basically just leaves and yeah. doesn't come back because she just doesn't want to deal with raising this child. So there was a culmination of so many things at the end there too when they when they are 
we've been we've been distracted by cats cats they're being cute they they're they're, they've been grooming each other a lot lately it's cute they're so gay i know (laughs) look at his face look at his face he looks relaxed (laughs) what were you you saying though yeah sorry (laughs) the cats brought us out of it the uh the ending of Racerhead was kind of the culmination of all of his feelings into one thing and it kind of explodes into something which is really just his own death at the end of it i can only assume it was his own death there wasn't really anything else to explain what might have happened to him but the thing that throws you off is the popcorn cheeks right that's what is it like what is why is it deformed i feel like it's it was just a stylistic approach to make you feel out of it well her face even looks clay like because of what they had done on her but she's beautiful underneath i believe are those not her dimples huh (laughs) like enlarged dimples to make someone more inviting Oh, I don't know, baby. To make death more inviting, but in like a really surreal way. Remember, dreams, people, dreams. We're <laughs> thinking about dreams. Like, I feel like the the roommate thing, I just thought of this right now, but it could have also just been, since it's all anxiety, everything has like some anxiety attached to it in this movie, along with depression and a bunch of other things. But the anxiety of him being like, if my wife leaves me, even my roommate won't even love me because I have such an ugly child and then we'll bang and it'll be kind of cool and then she'll leave and then it'll be awful and then my head's going to fall off and then, you know, like... Could have just been a moment of him, like, masturbating and that was, like, the it, thoughts that, that was, came through into his dream. Yeah, exactly. Definitely could have been well, a thing as well. Well, he put his sexual tensions in a box and then yeah. his sexual... Because that's the thing. He puts it in the box and then he tries to make a move on his wife in that one scene. And she, like, shakes she, like, her shakes shoulder her off, off and- so then he looks at the cupboard and the little thing goes into the tree and then it just burrows and stays in there. Well, shit. So that was him releasing his worm again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> releasing his worm. That's a great analogy Love it. or something like that. So, all right. Then what are your final thoughts for both films? These are great movies. I have a little bit more respect for David Lynch now. I kind of want to see what Mulholland Drive has to offer and Twin Peaks as well. Twin Peaks is so good. Oh, yeah. If you haven't watched it yet, go watch it. Just it's going it. to throw you <laughs> off, though, if you watch it, like if you're high or some shit. <laughs> no, you should definitely watch it while you're, you're like, high. What the, okay. You should only watch David Lynch while you're high. We are here now. <laughs> I think I'm going to show Eraserhead to people who don't like horror movies, so they really don't like horror movies. Ah, <laughs> so they really don't like horror films. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I think that you could discuss the meaning behind Eraserhead for hours. You there's could. A lot of stuff. You, there's a lot of stuff to unpack and a lot of interpretations to the film. And I think even David Lynch has come out as saying he doesn't want to explain what the movie is about to you. He wants you to do it himself, which just creates more, you know, discussion. And I guess he might catch flack for being pretentious for doing this, or he might just be one of the most brilliant filmmakers ever. Uh, I don't know. I think part of it was that uh, he may have just did things for no reason. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> also a thing just, as well. He may have just made weird scenes and was like, yeah. you know, this is how I feel about it. I want to make this scene. I, I feel like some of his stuff's too cohesive for me to just put it as that. Um, <laughs> it's just that too well thought out between Monday dane and macabre yeah exactly of course there you go well it's why he has his own distinct style at this point people know it's his stuff and then uh, i would say blue velvet blue velvet is like him like how like some bands find their sound after a certain album he kind of found his like like style with that movie yeah exactly (laughs) and so a lot of his movies would will seem a lot like blue velvet i say when you go down more so than they would eraser head 
Eraserhead is very different from the rest of David Lynch's movies, in my opinion. I would say his shit all exists in one world. That's kind, also a kind thing of as like well. how uh, Tarantino does his shit. Like all his movies exist. It, in it's one all world. just David Lynch's dream. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's just dreams, man. <laughs> I'm gonna be that. That's that, that's gonna be the meme from this episode. It's just dreams, guys. Um. Uh, but I would say that Blue Velvet is probably one of the better interpretations or showcases of his ability to do like this dreamlike surreal, oh, okay. like mash of the macabre and the mundane that Murr was discussing. Right. I think the filmmaker in me likes Eraserhead more because I think it is just really well shot in addition to having an amazing soundscape and then just the best acting from the people in it who are fucking weird. Like they're so weird. They're like, I don't think anyone really could have done something like that. And the main guy is just so good at expressing uh, these emotions that people experience all the time on their own. Uh, Whereas with blue velvet, I think I just, I just didn't like it. I watch it like with people just to show it with them and stuff like that. But I didn't think it was like some of his best work. I think he's done other things that are like way better. So I was like, watching it i was like this is in it's still entertaining like i think it's entertaining to watch it because that but i don't know what it was that i could not vibe with for that movie (laughs) i mean i i kind of feel that i think i like blue velvet just because of the visual aspect i mean that's kind of what i like a lot of movies for is how they appear and how that's cohesive to how it feels yeah um but i think that's something I could say about both of these movies is that if you want to feel something, you should watch these movies. And I, it's probably not going to be a good feeling because these movies will make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. If you're not used to seeing these. Kind oh of yeah. Stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, that's definitely a thing. I should also say that I think one of the reasons why I also sort of don't like it is because I don't really like any films that have some sort of like heavy sexual abuse with women. Definitely. Cause I think it's just a weak script writing technique to use in something. And I've fought several people on it where they're like, no, it's like, it's supposed to have this effect. And like, what about if women write this? And I'm like, to be honest, most women don't write that, but there's like, it ends up being a plot device that I think is, shouldn't be used in that way. Uh, and I wouldn't use it in my own writing. Like I'd find other ways to, like portray certain events of horror than just like oh this person's getting assaulted this is like the worst thing that can happen to them because it's just like what are you doing besides kind of alienating some women who are watching your shit definitely (laughs) you know like you're just kind of being like this is what's going to happen to women all the time in all of the horror films and Uh i know i know it's not what everyone thinks i'm not going to argue with you on this (laughs) really um because this is probably one of the most I would argue probably one of the most tame assault scenes I've ever seen. Yeah, it's not as bad as you know. Some you other you, shit, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's not as because gra- it's there's an argument that Frank has no dick in this movie, and if you watch the movie with the idea that Frank is absolutely cockless, huh. then there's a lot of funny things that he like says and right. whatnot because it's like something he literally cannot have whatsoever. Right. Hence why it's so fucking weird that he like denim like denim humps this lady. And whatnot, which is gross, of course, but I don't know. But I don't. But at the same time, it's also not my favorite David Lynch movie either. Like, yeah, I, I agree with most people that I'd like a racer head more. Yeah. Um, Mulholland Drive's also a crazy Mulholland good Drive trip. Is really good. Is, gr- is a great movie as well. Uh, I just think that Mulholland Drive is more convoluted in how it presents its information, <sighs> yeah. whereas Blue Velvet is more is better at doing it while still being a little bit like vague with its stuff. So I think that there's, it's, it's just, there's a technique that's done better in one movie, not necessarily that the script is better or yeah. anything along those lines. All right. What are your final ratings for the films then? 
9 out of 10 for Eraserhead. Has great atmosphere, great shots, a lot of fucking feeling. <laughs> I'd give uh, Blue Velvet like a high 7 to low 8. I thought it was enjoyable. I like how it has a lot of twists. I didn't know where the story was going, and I was like excited to see what Frank would pull up every time he was fucking pulling up. I think Eraserhead's pretty much a nine for me. And then you've got Blue Velvet, which I'll get I'll give like an eight. I'm gonna give it an eight just because it's it's too weird for some people. <laughs> it's not at Razorhead's a little is also weird, it's why it keeps it from a ten. It's not exac- exactly accessible. Yeah, that's fair. It's really not made for everybody. <laughs> David Lynch is not accessible. <laughs> Death grips, do that movie. Oh fuck yes. Dang. Um I would probably have to give Eraserhead also a nine because it, for what it was at the time, I think it was a very significant movie. I think it's very thought provoking and there's just a lot to unpack. And it's, there's so much to unpack that I feel like you could watch this a dozen times and get a new perception of what he's trying to convey in this movie. And I think anybody that can do that with a film is doing something right. Um, And then I would give Blue Velvet probably like a seven, you know, because I, I just really like the way that how cohesive, like just the visual aspects and how it was, how you're supposed to be feeling throughout the movie. I really enjoy that aspect to it. Um, I would have to say there are some things I would consider distasteful, which is why I wouldn't give it a higher rating. But at the same time, I think it was well done for what it was at the time. Uh, I want to give Eraserhead a 10, but like, Mitch had mentioned it's inaccessible to a whole lot of people because you either don't know what's going on or it's just not your thing to watch a black and white film about body horror and the horror of having children. So it's like, that's sort of like an inaccessible thing. If you want to watch an accessible film, that's kind of like a raise your head, go watch the Babadook. See how you feel about kids in that film. And it's like a legit good, scary, like modern horror film Uh, for blue velvet. I'll give it like a six. Uh, for the things that I was describing earlier, I feel like he relied too heavily on certain aspects of the film to carry it through, which was the aesthetic of creating this, uh, like he created his own, uh, world to make films in. And it, of course, adheres to this dreamlike logic that you're supposed to kind of just suspend your disbelief for most of it. But it ends up asking, I think, too much of the audience while you're watching it to like have no explanation for what's going on and then to proceed forward without any sort of like communications on these ideas was just too much I think and it kind of makes it inaccessible in that own way where the script is too heavy on diving into how some people will unravel especially like psychopaths and how they're going to feel about their own relationships with people so which is why I would give it like a six as opposed to like a higher rating or something like that still enjoyable to go watch i wouldn't tell someone to not watch it i don't think we've had a film yet where i'm like don't go watch this (laughs) because uh, at the very least you can get some entertainment out of it and go and watch something like that but that's pretty much it you guys have anything else all right idea so idea the blue velvet is frank's dick He's always just carrying it around, and it's detached from everything. Oh, I thought you were going to say his oxygen was like his No, dick. not at all. No. <laughs> or whatever that could just that. be a painkiller for him just not having a wiener. Oh, there you go. I don't know. I just saw that theory brought up, and I just was like thinking about it now. And then I was like, wait a minute. What if like he just can't do anything? 
So he's just being an angry person to just everyone. Just being angry all the being time. shitty all the time. His testosterone's off because he's missing. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Or he's just literally a psychopath, which is probably the more accurate of the two. <laughs> I'll get back with my thoughts right. on Frank's dickless existence. <laughs> <laughs> That's my final thought. That's great. That's, I think we should just end it right there. <laughs> What's that? Giant fucking mech. Oh, wait. Wrong episode. <laughs> Giant fucking mechs. <laughs> um, no. Um, if you want to hear us talk about more black and white body horror movies, we have an episode on Tetsuo the Iron Man. It's also paired up with Ricky O, the best fighting movie of all fucking time. You should also go listen to the Lighthouse episode. That's a good one as well. Because uh, that's a wild ride <laughs> to go through that film. But yeah, I just wanted to remind people that we have those episodes and yes. we went pretty in-depth on them. Yeah, we really did. Uh, so just as a quick reminder to everybody, our Patreon is live. We are having our own segments on there, which are getting updated uh, every week, if not every other week, with uh bloopers which are going to be moments we've taken out of recording before the episode starts as well as those segments and uh once you have subscribed you are going to get a chance to vote on an upcoming episode and so currently i think we just have two patrons right now so thank you guys for supporting us for a few months now eric and anthony yes the troopers We are super easy to find on all the streaming services. Just Google bringing down the grindhouse and you can find us on the main ones like Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio and SoundCloud. Find us on all the social medias. You can find us at BDTGH underscore podcast, or you can go to the website, which is BDTGHpodcast.com, and you'll be able to listen right on the website and or contact us. So if you feel like leaving us reviews or um suggestions or comments you can go and do that on all the social medias but thanks so much for coming out to talk with you i hope everyone have a good night i'm mitch i'm Mer. I'm